If we humans excel at anything, it is being foolish. In 475 BC, it is said that Greek philosopher Heraclitus died after being devoured by dogs. It's tragic and gross, yes, but it was also very foolish. You see, prior to being the doggy's delight, he had smeared himself with cow manure in an apparent attempt to cure his edema. Fast forward to 1912, and tailor and inventor Franz Reichelt, now known as the Flying Tailor, leapt off the Eiffel Tower while wearing his invention, a parachute made from cloth. This didn't go so well for Franz, and he rather unsurprisingly died mid-experiment. When asked prior to the leap why he hadn't used a dummy instead of his own living, breathing, gravity-susceptible body, he said, quote, I intend to prove the worth of my invention. Even the supposed geniuses among us can be foolish. In 1978, Kurt Gödel, an Austrian-American logician and mathematician, developed a rather obsessive fear of being poisoned. One day, when his wife fell ill and was hospitalized, he was convinced that she was poisoned. As a result, he refused to eat and promptly died from starvation. Of course, we don't always die from our acts of foolishness. These are just the most extravagant examples of human fatuity. More often, we say something foolish, like an inappropriate joke in the middle of a sales meeting, or do something foolish, like drink one too many glasses of wine at dinner, a folly I am rather guilty of. But for the most part, our foolishness isn't deadly, it's just kind of dumb. A folly is considered one of the seven vices and sits opposite to its virtue, prudence, which is the quality of being cautious. A foolishness is even mentioned in the Bible, albeit in gross and rather childish terms. Quoting Proverbs 26.11, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And there is perhaps no other domain that humans are more foolish in than love. Love makes us stupid and blind and impulsive and desperate. And yet, we love the tonic of love. We return to it time and again, despite its often poisonous effects, because there is nothing quite like the early days of being smitten, or as my friend recently called it, being a smitten kitten. Meow. In fact, the word infatuation, originating in the mid-1600s, comes from the Latin verb infatuare, from fatuous meaning foolish. So, quite literally, to be infatuated is to be a fool. And some of us can be a bit more foolish than others. Some of us are more prone to being infatuated and giving our everything to the object of our affection. 
I know I am. But this tendency tends to come with a lot of shadows. When it comes to being a fool for love, when does it stop being a sweet puppy crush and start becoming a problem? Hi, I'm Jessica Carson, and welcome to Patina, a podcast that examines the surprising beauty of all that is dark, shadowy, and seemingly tarnished about the human experience. Let's play. Infatuation involves an immediate, intense attraction to someone. It's a state of being carried away by an unreasonable, illogical passion, one that's intensity does not necessarily match reality. If you want to know if you ever have been or currently are infatuated with someone, here are a few hints. You replay your brief encounters over and over again in your head, You have a hard time thinking about anything or anyone else other than this individual. And you find it hard to eat or sleep or pay attention because of your constant state of arousal, both in your mind and perhaps elsewhere. Quite unsurprisingly, infatuation tends to be strongly characterized by sexual desire and the longing for both physical and emotional connection. And it tends to be based on an image of what we think the other person is. We romanticize them, put them on a pedestal, and assign all sorts of glorious labels and attributes to them. If some of this sounds familiar, don't worry. I'm in the same camp. Guilty infatuationist over here. Naturally, infatuation happens at the beginning of a relationship when everything is new and novel and completely delicious. There is nothing quite like the exciting and euphoric and lustful stage of getting to know another. When we experience a rapid expansion of ourselves in synchrony with another person, it can be a chemically binding and blinding experience. But due to the illogical nature of infatuation, it is short-lived and typically lasts only a few months or up to a year. But you may be thinking, hey, I've been infatuated with someone and then it worked. It turned into a really real, sustainable, healthy relationship. And that certainly can happen. Infatuation may develop into a mature love and be a precursor to a more developed, more adult, more tempered form of intimacy. And sometimes there can even be a healthy overlapping stage where infatuation and a genuine romantic relationship can coexist. Although for many, it fizzles out once the excitement has gone to bed pun intended. From an evolutionary perspective, infatuation makes a good deal of sense. 
The neurotransmitters that flood our systems during the infatuation process allow us to identify a genetically superior mating partner and channel our mating energy towards courting one individual until the insemination process has been completed. An unfortunate, but I suppose understandable, evolutionary reason why many people, and often those with the uh, hardware for inseminating, are known to lose a bit of interest once the act is over. But I want to restate the focus of today's episode. It is not on love. It is very specifically on infatuation. And there's a big difference. Love is devotion, but sustainably so. It is warm and enthusiastic, but it is also tempered and nuanced. You see the person for how they really are, imperfections and all, and you choose to accept them anyway. Infatuation, on the other hand, is blind. With infatuation, we often don't see the imperfections, which isn't necessarily a great thing. Infatuation is obsessive and not based in the reality of who the person really is or what we can be with that person in the long run. It's a somewhat shallow honeymoon phase that may or may not develop into monogrammed towels. And because of this blindness, it is said that infatuation can only be meaningfully disentangled from love in hindsight, once we had the space to look back and see the relationship for what it really was, free of being drugged by our own neurochemistry. If an episode of infatuation does not indeed result in a happily ever after, it typically will end after our illusions about the person are let down by the less sexy truth of who they are and what your potential is as a lasting couple. Because even if there were a world in which your picture-perfect perspective on the person was dead on, infatuation just cannot last on a physiological level. You see, when we are infatuated, we are in a state of high, high arousal. We are attending to their every word and responding to their every gesture, picking up on cues, explicit and subtle, spoken and unsaid. This hypervigilance and intense arousal is part of why infatuation can feel so nice, we simply cannot tear ourselves away from the unicorn across from the candlelit dinner table. But this state of high arousal is also, quite literally, unsustainable. We can't maintain such a high state of alertness and awareness of a person for a prolonged period of time without crashing. At some point, your infatuation will be forced to fade, for better, or for worse, and it's probably for the better. Over our lifetime, many of us will rub up against an episode, or several, of infatuation, whether it be a schoolyard puppy love, a forbidden crush on a college professor, or an endless fascination with a mysterious barista in the coffee shop. But some of us are more prone to the shadows of infatuation than others. Some of us, your host included, 
are wired for intensity and newness and passion and pleasure, and this preference can put us in a particularly precarious situation. For those infatuation-prone among us, it can be pretty tricky to figure out what is love and what is tomfoolery. It seems the line that separates those of us who are prone to infatuation from those of us who are more tempered is, well, dopamine. I'm sure you've heard of the neurotransmitter dopamine, but maybe you didn't know that some of us are more dopamine motivated than others. I am very much one such person. Those of us dopamine-motivated people tend to be curious, creative, spontaneous, excitable, impulsive, mentally flexible, and full of energy. We are fabulous risk-takers, endless idea-generators, and hate being around boring people. And so, naturally, we want our love lives to be anything but boring. We want intensity and intrigue, and so infatuation ensues. For us dopamine-motivated people, the phenomenal novelty of a budding romance can be enough to tip us over into infatuation. They smell new, feel new, move new, sound new, and inspire us in new ways, and we simply cannot get enough. All of a sudden, our universe has a new gravitational center. We are aroused to pay more attention. We are more motivated to do extravagant and unusual things. And we are also more goal-directed, which might explain why, in the infatuation stages of a relationship, we tend to remember every itty-bitty little thing that our beloved says. We are more proactive in planning show-stopping outings and are more likely to act in ways that make the person happy, even if that means taking out a loan to pay for a date. This intense romanticism sounds pretty great, and it certainly can be. Being infatuated is like being stoned all the time, but with someone who's stoned right along with you. And instead of being captivated by the patterns of the leaves in the trees, you get the luxurious benefit of being the object of someone's infatuation. But infatuation has also been known to make us do some pretty unfortunate things. Things that can be downright dark. We are all at least somewhat familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet. Some may call it a love story, but it really wasn't. They knew each other for a little more than four days before they met their tragic demise. And I hate to say it, but that ain't enough time to develop genuine romantic love. They were infatuated and we see how that ended for them. Swept up by fictional hormones and neurotransmitters, they were quite convinced they couldn't live without the other. But if Romeo and Juliet had made it one or two more months, the story probably would have ended a bit differently. Maybe Romeo would have realized Juliet was a petty gossiper, 
Or Juliet would have discovered that Romeo was a piggish slob, and things would have ended a bit more naturally. But alas, the results of infatuation were much more dramatic. They both died. And so, now is the time in this podcast when we must look at the shadows of infatuation. And let's just say, there are a lot of them. If Romeo and Juliet were any indication, infatuation can turn us into a damn fool, and a deadly one at that. Let's start, first and foremost, with intrusive thinking. Under the drunkenness of infatuation, we tend to experience obsessive thoughts of our beloved and find it hard to focus on anything else. We can become possessed by the unstable ride of lust, often resulting in symptoms that include, but are not limited to, sleeplessness, paleness and flushing, stammering and trembling, sweaty palms and weak knees, a loss of appetite complemented by butterflies in the stomach, quickened breathing and heart rate, and often even panic, awkwardness, or fear in the presence of our beloved. Bliss with despair, fulfillment with emptiness, pleasure with pain, exhilaration with listlessness, ecstasy with angst, poetic inspiration with anxious rumination. These are the tragic opposites that fill the infatuated soul. And if we experience a setback with our beloved, whether that be an actual argument or a text that we deem to have a weird tone, we can fall into states of brooding and apathy. It's not all a bed of rose petals. And infatuation can make it oh so easy to overlook red flags. In our drugged state, we have an unusual willingness to write off angry outbursts as an indication of passion or careless moments of selfishness as a form of endearing quirkiness. Trust me, I've made excuses for the worst of it. And haven't we all? When under the spell of infatuation, my typically confident self can transform into a disempowered fool who is put up with more than her fair share of subpar partners, with their days delayed text responses and 30 minute late buffers to dinner dates. I'm not proud, but what can I say? I was hijacked. It's also worth noting that the infatuation prone mind may direct itself toward other areas outside of love. These types of individuals may channel their infatuation into their idols. For instance, men who fall in love with their sports heroes, or ideas, like my love of all things light and dark. It's also quite common for infatuation-prone people to become infatuated with their therapeutic support, like a coach or psychologist, projecting onto them all the ideals of a perfect person, an ideal that the therapist will inevitably fall short of. Again something I've learned the hard way. But the dopamine-motivated mind that seeks out intensity and excitement and novelty 
is also lined with gold. While infatuation-prone individuals may need to work a bit harder to make long-term love relationships stick, the outcome of that extra effort may pay romantic dividends. Anecdotally speaking, the infatuation-prone people that I know who have found their love match are exceptionally adoring, devoted, and sensual partners. They are lit on fire by their love and display a unique capacity for genuine long-term adoration. More so than non-infatuation types, they don't just have a love, they have a love story. The Judgment of Paris sounds rather like a historical gathering or political treaty, but in fact, The Judgment of Paris refers to a mythological story. As the myth goes, all of the gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon were invited to a wedding. It was a joyous affair, attended by many, including Eris, the goddess of discord. Perhaps not the best invite choice, but I digress. Eris decided to spice things up and brought a rather provocative wedding gift, a golden apple which had the words written upon it, for the fairest. Now, many of the goddesses in attendance naturally thought these words described them best and tried to claim the golden apple for themselves. This included Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, and Hera, the goddess of marriage. Well, the goddesses couldn't settle the matter on their own, so it was decided that Paris, a mortal prince of Troy, would decide who should be gifted the golden apple with its title of fairest. We can imagine the competition was stiff. They were all goddesses after all, but one of them made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Aphrodite told Paris that she would gift him the hand of the most beautiful mortal woman in all the land, Helen of Troy. Well, Paris was infatuated, and this worked in Aphrodite's favor. She was made the winner of the contest, and Paris set off to steal his love, literally. Caught up in his infatuation, he abducted Helen, a fateful act that would famously launch a thousand ships. Suffice it to say, we do some downright foolish things under the spell of infatuation, and some of us more than others. But here's the thing, I don't know about you, but if I could change my wiring so that I wasn't as susceptible to infatuation and its messy effects, I wouldn't. Call me an addict, but I love the feeling too much to give it up. And I've also been around the block enough times to know that, sometimes, when the stars align and the goddesses are smiling down upon you, the shadows of infatuation can give way to something more, something deeper, something that feels a lot like love, 
And if you're lucky, sometimes it really is. That's all for today's episode of Patina, written and produced by me, Jessica Carson, with the help of my partner in crime, Jeffrey Sayers. With any luck, it's helped you to look into a shadowy aspect of your human experience with a bit more hope and a lot more curiosity. If you like Patina, I think you'll really enjoy my other offerings, from online courses to books to group and individual coaching and consulting. I warmly invite you as a seeker to dive deep with me into all that is beautiful about the shadows within yourself, your company, your relationships, and our society. So give me a follow and maybe even drop me a note on how we can play together. After all, the shadows are a lot more friendly when we play.